our text this morning. The, the majority of our uh, text that we're going to focus on are, are the verses in the fifth chapter. And the title of our message today is Jesus, Men, and Demons. And as you would imagine, right from the start, uh, this is obviously uh, quite a heavy topic. The story here that we read together is um, one, one of the, I think in many ways, one of the heaviest stories in all of Scripture. And, um, you know, the, the subject itself of Satan and the demonic, and, you know, that, that, that's a subject that uh, people are a little bit freaked out about. And, um, but it's a subject that we must address because we find it right here in the scripture. I want to quote uh, from C.S. Lewis in the, the Screwtape Letters, his uh, classic work on the subject of the devil. And in the introduction to the Screwtape Letters, Lewis said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And, and these are really kind of the two categories that you mostly find. You and, and you find this uh, not just out in the world, but you find this in the church as well. Uh, there are people who their tendency is to dismiss any serious uh, discussion about the devil, uh, want to just relegate it to kind of a mythology at the time, uh, something that we, of course, in our enlightened uh, age could never take seriously. Or you've got people who they, they see demons and the devil in virtually everything that's going on around them. So as Lewis said, uh, both of those positions, uh, the demons themselves uh, hail both of those uh, positions with delight. So what the Bible does for us always is it brings everything into balance and it gives us the right perspective. So according to scripture, yes, there is a devil and there are demons, but also, according to scripture, uh, they have limitations. And of course, they are themselves even subject to the authority of God. And, and we see that in the story that we read today. But, but just before we jump into the story, I, I want to just take a look for a moment at just, just the subject of uh, what we ha have here in the text, the subject of demon possession. Now, there are about a dozen cases of demon possession found uh, in the New Testament. So as you go through and you put, piece everything together from the Gospels and the book of Acts, you have about a dozen cases uh, of what, what we see here, demon possession is really the right term. And in each one of them, the persons possessed are afflicted, a tormented and abused. So the, 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 the demon's effect upon people is, is always 
a negative effect. Uh, the demonic effects range from physical impairments like blindness, deafness, lameness, seizures, uh, to self-harm and mutilation, to violence, insanity, and clairvoyance. So those are the different types of things that you see as you look at these, say, 12 cases that we're talking about. You see, uh, in some cases, you see a number of these. In some cases, you see a couple of them. But these are the kinds of things that are being experienced uh, by those who are possessed. And in each case, the demons have taken control of certain aspects of the person's life and, and they must be cast out by a power greater than themselves. And of course, that would be God's power. So a person who is in a, a state like we're reading about here has no ability themselves to be freed from this. They can't free themselves. They must be freed f- uh, from an outside source. So ultimately, of course, it's God's power, but sometimes it can be... Um, you know, one, one of God's servants or a number of God's servants that are the, the instrument through which that happens. Now, both Jesus and the apostles refer to Satan and demons in ways that describe their character as well as their activity. So Jesus tells us things about the devil, for example, that give us insight into his character and, and also simultaneously reveal his activity. Uh, in John's gospel, in the uh, eighth chapter, the 44th verse, Jesus said this. He said, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So, wow, murder is, is connected to the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and also a liar. And so all deceit, all, um, all lies, um, especially those that, that are, you know, pertain to spiritual realities and so forth, those, those things all originate with the devil, according to Jesus. Now, as I said, the apostles also um, made reference to the devil. Paul, uh, in his epistle to the Corinthians, his second epistle, he referred to Satan as the god of this age. <clears throat> and, and the New Testament refers to Satan as the one who's immediately ruling over the present age. So he's the god of this age. And Paul says that he has blinded the minds of those who do not believe the gospel. So again, we see his work. He blinds people to the reality of the gospel. In writing to the Ephesians, Paul, uh, speaking of the devil, he referred to him as the prince or the ruler of the power of the air. Uh, The power of the air is a reference to the unseen realm. So he's the ruler of the unseen realm. And he is the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. So Satan is at work in the world and he works in the invisible realm and he influences those who live in disobedience. They're part of the reason they're living in disobedience is because of the influence that he has 
over their lives. Uh, Paul, in writing to Timothy, he spoke of the devil taking people captive to do his will. And then Peter wrote of the devil. He referred to him as your adversary, the devil. And he said that he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So those are some of the passages that we have uh, in the New Testament referring to him. And you see that both his character and his activity are being described. Uh, Satan, we commonly uh, use that term. And the Satan means the adversary. That, that's the meaning of the word. So he is the adversary. He's the one who is in opposition to God. Devil means slanderer. And this is what he does. He slanders God. He slanders human beings. He puts uh, slander oftentimes into the hearts and in the mouths of people. Um, He is the slanderer. Uh, The book of Revelation refers to him as the dragon. And a dragon is obviously a fearsome creature. Uh, So he's fearsome. But Revelation refers to him as the dragon. And then it says this, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So the book of Revelation wants to remind us that this person first appeared in history all the way back at the very dawn of time. Because we find, of course, it was a serpent that deceived Eve. And it's, a, it's the same person that's being spoken of all the way through. And he is quite frequently referred to as the evil one. So he is the evil one. Uh, evil originated with him, emanates from him. And then the demons are unclean spirits, impure spirits, evil spirits. They're all similar, but the the one distinction is that the one that we commonly call Satan or the devil is the one who rules over that world, those spiritual forces of darkness. Now, when you begin to understand the nature and activity of Satan and demons, only then can you really begin to understand why the world is the way it is. You see, the world is the way it is partially because of the influence of these evil spirits. Now, of course, they have the cooperation of human beings, but they are uh, behind the scenes, manipulating, and uh, in, in some senses, controlling So one of the major reasons for the constant state of moral, social, and personal upheaval is because the world is under the influence of these evil spirits. And they they manipulate everything from world affairs right down to the personal affairs uh, of everyday, ordinary people. Ironically, for some, it has taken the realization that there is a devil before they believe that there was a God. And, and a great case in point uh, would be the atheist British philosopher C.E.M. Jode. Uh, this man, C.E.M. Jode, was a well-known atheist philosopher back in the 
all the time around the, the Second World War, but he came to faith after observing the evil and the atrocities of the Second World War. So he, he you know, he was a, a well-known philosopher and an atheist, but when he saw what happened with Hitler and Nazism and, and, and all of those related things, he was convinced that, that human evil was not a sufficient explanation for, the, for just the, the horrific things that, that happened during that time. So he actually came to believe that there were evil spirits. And once he came to believe there were evil spirits, it was then the next step in logic to conclude that if there are evil spirits and if there is a devil, then there also must be a God. So ultimately he came out of atheism uh, to, to belief in God through, first of all, uh, coming to the conviction that there had to be evil spirits. So as we look at the, um, just the whole picture, the Bible is clear that there is a devil and there are demons and they are still very much alive and active on planet Earth. So the story that we read today, although this happened a long time ago, it is showing us the reality that still exists with us today. So, so the devil and demons are still very much alive and active on planet Earth, but even more important than that is the fact that Christ has come and he has dealt the death blow to these evil forces. And Paul puts it, very profoundly when he writes to the Colossians, he says, Christ having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the the reference to the evil spirits, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So here in our story, we have a preview really of the absolute authority that Jesus will ultimately exercise over the spiritual forces of this present darkness uh, when he comes to establish God's kingdom. But, but we get a little preview of it in his dealings with this demoniac here. So let's look together at uh, the text itself and beginning right here in verse one of chapter five. So they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. So they remember they, they left... Um, what would be the the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And they went over now across to the eastern side uh, to this region. And it tells us at the end of the uh, verses here, it was the the region of the Decapolis. So the Decapolis is is an area that there were 10 Greco-Roman cities that were built. And um, they they were like little kind of Greco-Roman colonies but they were built in what was historically the land of Israel. And so Decapolis means 10 cities, but, but they were centers of, of Greek and Roman thought and life and worship, and they were massive centers of idolatry. Now, if you get a chance to travel with us to Israel, 
you will visit one of these amazing cities that has been uh, excavated. And it's the ancient city of Bethshan, uh, but during the period of the, the, the 10 cities, it was called Sciopolis. And um, if you go there today, it is absolutely fascinating to see how advanced these communities were. They, they have a massive um, theater that seats thousands and thousands of people. Uh, they had public baths and uh, toilets, running water. Uh, it's interesting. You can actually sit on these ancient toilets. And, um, you know, in those days, they just kind of sat there and talked to each other. Um, I don't, they didn't figure out that you could put a partition uh, with a door, apparently. Um, but, you know, it's really a, a fascinating place. Amazing. There's, there's these long porticos and these uh, pillars you could see where the marketplace once stood. And it's all quite fascinating. But what you find out about these cities is that they were, they were like the epicenter of demonism in the region. And, and it's interesting because if you remember, there's a prophecy that was given by Isaiah um, that, of course, was referring to Jesus. And the prophecy was that the land and uh, the area of uh, beyond the Galilee of the Gentiles, those who sat in darkness would see a great light. So there was, there was darkness in this region, spiritual darkness. And that's where we find this man in the region of the Gadarenes. And so as we look at him, I want you to notice a few things. Let me read it. And when he had come out of the boat, Jesus, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. I don't know that there's a more pathetic picture of a human being anywhere in scripture than right here. I mean, if you really... Just get this in your mind visually. Okay, first of all, the man is, you know, this guy is a complete outcast. He dwells among the tombs. And undoubtedly, there were two reasons for that. One of the reasons was the demonic influence. The demons drove him there. But the other would have been um, that the community would have driven him out. And understandably, this was a frightening person. And obviously a violent person. And so the idea was, let's get this person as far away from us as we can. Let's lock him up. And of course, they tried to lock him up, but they found that he also had this strange uh, superhuman power. So they bound him with chains, but the chains weren't able to hold him. He was an outcast because he was a menace to society. You know, this is the kind of person that you just said, okay, we got to get this guy out of our city. We got to get him out of our village. We, we, we got to get him as far away from ourselves and our children and, and everything as we can because this person's a, a threat to everybody. He's a threat to the peace. So he was a person who was completely cast away. But then notice he was incessantly tormented, night and day crying out, cutting himself. 
I mean, again, think of that picture. All alone there by himself, out among the tombs, in the graveyard, and and tormented and, you know, howling and wailing and screaming and crying and cutting himself. And this was his life. And, And as I said earlier, this is what the demons did to him. This was the work of the demons. They had brought him to this place. So as you, as you look at the situation, what really seems to be is that the, this man is, is utterly helpless and he is seemingly hopeless. I mean, what can you do for a person like this except get him away from everybody else and just do your best to restrain him? And, and what hope was there? Who was, gonna, who was even going to have any compassion on him? Who, was, who would even care for him, let alone try to help him? I mean, I'm sure and understandably the vast majority of people are like, man, thank you that we got rid of that guy because he was a frightening character. But then we have to look at the demons as well. And so notice what happens. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, here's a man, but he is so thoroughly overtaken by the demons that it's like his personality is now gone. And all of the, the conversation that we see happening here is really between Jesus and the demons, but they're controlling and animating the person. And so what happens? When he saw Jesus, so here's this man. Now think about this. This man's never seen Jesus. This is the first time that Jesus has ever visited that side of the sea. And Jesus comes out of the boat. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshiped him. That is bizarre. So this guy just comes out of the tombs. He sees him from a distance and he makes his way and he falls down and he begins to worship. Now the word worship here is a common word for worship. Uh, it's proskuneo, which is the, the Greek word that me, it literally means to turn and to kiss. And it's the word that is most often used to talk about our worship to God, but it doesn't only have to be understood in that way. It can also be understood to mean uh, simply to revere. And I think that's the, the context here, that the man, uh, he, he comes and he falls down. Uh, he's acknowledging the authority of Jesus. That's what he's doing here. So he ran and he worshiped him and he cried out with a loud voice and said, again, obviously the demons are speaking here. This man knows nothing. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Who knew that Jesus was son of the most high God at this point in his ministry? Nobody. Not even the apostles knew that. Remember, they had just asked the question because they had crossed the sea in the storm. Jesus calmed it. Their question was, who is this? Well, this guy knows who it is. You're Jesus. You're the son of the most high God. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So this isn't the first encounter with, with the demonic that we find in Mark's gospel. Back in the first chapter, uh, there's an encounter that Jesus has with a demonized person. We read it, but we didn't really go into any detail on it because I intentionally held off because I wanted to address it here. But they said, or, or that 
demon speaking through that person said the same thing that the demons are saying here. They are basically asking not to be tormented. And the idea is that they're, they're really saying, please don't cast us into that permanent place of judgment yet. That, that's what they're pleading for. And so that's the cry. Now, Mark tells us, for, for he said to them, so this is why the, this whole thing is happening, for he had said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. So think about the picture though. Again, this man is at a distance away. He sees the, the boat come up onto the shore. He sees Jesus get out. He begins to run and then he falls down and then he says all of these things. But then Mark tells us it's because Jesus had said already before he even encountered the person, Jesus had already commanded the spirit to leave him. So there's this cosmic battle that's already taking place before these two ever meet face to face. And so Jesus asked, what is your name? What is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion for we are many. So this is where it gets really crazy. There's not one demon that's controlling this man. There are many. Now, legion, uh, a legion was a, a military grouping of 6,000 plus soldiers. So at, at this time, under, under Caesar Augustus, which was not that far back. It could have changed to some degree here. But, but dur during the reign of Augustus, 6,000 plus soldiers made up a legion. So whether there's literally like 6,000 demons in this person, uh, we don't know if this is just a figure of speech, but, but the, it's clear for we are many. So this man is possessed by many, many evil spirits. And then, here's what happens. Verse 10, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. So there was a large herd of swine feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission that the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 and the herd ran violently down uh, the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So that's bizarre. I mean, why do they want to be cast into the swine? Because they know they have to leave, but they don't want to go to the ab abyss. That's what they're saying. Don't, don't torment us. Don't throw us in the abyss. And so Jesus actually accommodates them here and he allows them to go into the swine. Now their stay in the swine was very brief, as you see, because the swine run down the steep part, part of the cliff and they're, they're all drowned. So um, evidently Jesus granted their initial request, but probably did what needed to be done with them beyond that. 
But it is a, a strange kind of a thing, and we'll come back to seeing just why Jesus did that in a moment. But before we do that, we have to look at Jesus here now. And what we have to do is we have to see the connection between this event and the previous story. That's why I had John read the, the whole uh, connecting thing going back to the fourth chapter. Remember, we talked last week about the storm. But what I didn't say about the storm last week, I want to say today because, see, these two stories are connected. This happens after the storm. When Jesus said, let's go over to the other side, this is where they're going. They're going to the other side to meet this man. Now, of course, they don't know that. Of course, Jesus does know it. And remember that suddenly there was this windstorm, and we talked about how that can even happen today on the Sea of Galilee. We talked about the, um, the elevation of the sea and we, the surrounding mountains and the wind and all of that can, come, that can come through. And that's all true from a natural standpoint, but there's probably another explanation as well. That storm was probably stirred up by the devil himself. And there's a couple reasons why we can think that. Number one is because we know the devil has power over nature. Read the book of Job if you doubt that. And in the book of Job, we see very clearly a number of events that happen that are, they look like natural disasters, but the book of Job tells us that Satan is the one who's orchestrating these things. So we know that he has power over nature. And also when Jesus uh, deals with the storm, it says that he stood and he rebuked the wind. And it's the same language that's used when he rebukes the evil spirits. So here's what's happening. Jesus is going to the other side for the express purpose of freeing this man from demonic control, and the devil is trying to stop him before he can get there. But he's undaunted because Jesus was on a mission to seek and to save the lost. You know, I was, I was telling Cheryl this morning, um, you know, we, we sing the song sometimes um, about the, the reckless love of God. And there's a bunch of controversy in the Christian community about whether we should be talking about the reckless love of God because God's not reckless and so forth. And, um, but, you know, there's part, part of the song talks about, you know, there's no wall that he won't tear down, no door that he won't kick down coming after me. And, you know, this... This story kind of really illustrates that point. Jesus is undaunted. He's, nothing's going to stop him from getting to this man. And so that is why he crossed the sea in the first place. When he said, let's go over to the other side, it was because he knew that there was a person who was tormented by multiple devils who had been completely abandoned by all of the rest of humanity, but he came to seek and to save that which was lost. This guy was as lost as you could ever get, but Jesus goes on this mission to find him, and I think that is astounding. And the other thing that we see here is the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. Why did Jesus go after him in the first place? Now, listen, 
you do not become demon-possessed passively. What I mean by that is, you know, it's not like somebody just is, you know, minding their own business and suddenly, you know, thousands of demons come and just take up residence in your body. It doesn't work that way. There has to be some previous engagement with the demonic world in order for this kind of possession to happen. So what that tells us is this man had, in a sense, brought this on himself through trafficking with demons. So that's why Jesus would later say, go back and tell everybody the compassion that the Lord has had on you. You see, this man, it wasn't like he really deserved to be delivered. He had put himself in this position. You know, sometimes we kind of think that about people, don't we? We think, well, you know what? They got what they deserved. And maybe that's true. But guess what? God doesn't think that way, thank God. <laughs> no, yes, he, he did in a sense get what he deserved, but it didn't stop Jesus from having mercy on him. And it didn't stop Jesus from having compassion toward him. And it didn't stop Jesus from doing everything that needed to be done to get to him. Now, there are two things that I want us to see as we wrap up the story here. First of all, I want us to see the tragedy here in the story. There is a tragic aspect to it. And we see it as we read on here in verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened and who, to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, here's the tragedy. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Wow, how, that is unbelievable. How could that be? Here's this man that was in the state that we've seen that he was in, and now he's perfectly normal. He's clothed. The other gospel writers tell us he was naked. You know, Matthew actually tells us there were two men, not just one. Mark focuses in on the one, probably the most vicious one. But Matthew tells us there were two. But it's obvious that something amazing has happened. Something wonderful has happened. But the people... They, instead of, I mean, you would think that they would say, oh, Jesus, would you come home with us? And we've got all kinds of things that we need you to deal with. You would think that they would do that, but they didn't do that. Instead, they were afraid and they said, you need to leave. Why would they do that? Well, this is what I think. I think that they wanted Jesus to leave because he was bad for business. See, these 2,000 pigs did not, these weren't pets. So this wasn't somebody just liked pigs and had 2,000 of them. This was a business. And remember, as I said, the land, although at the time was given over to Gentiles, it was still the land of Israel. And you know what you could not do in Israel is you could not raise pigs to eat pork because it was against the 
Mosaic law. But this was their business, and obviously it was lucrative, and they saw Jesus as bad for business. Now, I don't think this is just my imagination because we see this happening many times, even down to this very day. When Jesus comes in and changes people's lives, sometimes it it messes up business for other people and they don't like it. You know, think of the story in the book of Acts where there's another demon-possessed person. There's a woman who's demon-possessed and Paul delivers this woman from the demon possession and what happened after that? Her owners were enraged because they lost this person who was making them money. And so what did they do? They said, we got to kill this guy, Paul. We got to get rid of this guy. He's turning people away from, from worshiping Diana. He's turning people away from these images. And, you know, we're going to all go out of business if this guy's allowed to keep doing what he's doing. And, you know, that, that still happens today. It still happens today. People will get transformed by the power of Christ And they might be drug dealers or they might be prostitutes or they might be, you know, connected to some lucrative thing. It doesn't even have to be like that. Uh, But but rather than rejoicing and and welcoming uh, the the miracle that God has done, people get threatened. And they say, oh, we don't we don't want that. We you know, we don't want Jesus in our community. He might, you know, shut down the crack houses. He might, you know, all the pot stores might, you know, close down. We used to say bars, but now we don't, you know, we can say pot stores now. But it's true. And that was the tragedy of the day that they pushed Jesus out. But the triumph was the man himself. And look at the man. The demons were expelled and the man was restored. And what a great, great verse we have here as it describes the man himself, that the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion was now sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Amazing. What an amazing thing. The, the full and complete deliverance. You know, again, looking at the man for a moment, it, from the human standpoint, this guy was hopeless. Nobody could do anything for him. And you know, there's still people today that when you you look at them, you think this person's hopeless. There's nothing that can be done for them. Don't count them out because Jesus can do for them what he did for this man. There, There are people today that are possessed like this person was. And society can't help them. And nowadays, you know, they used to institutionalize people that were possessed like this, but now they just say, we, you know, we're not even going to do that anymore. You just go hit the streets. And I think on the streets of California, you will find people today that have this kind of demonization like this man had. Not everybody, but, but there are definitely some. But even in those cases, they're not beyond the help and the grace of God. And we can't forget that. So the man is restored, and then the mission is extended. So here's the thing that's so interesting. Jesus, he's going to the other side, but the, but the people there reject him. They say, no, get in the boat and go back where you came from. 
And Jesus complies. But what does he do? This man says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. Isn't that funny? Jesus says, no. I, I want to go with you. You know, sometimes we want to go do something for the Lord. Lord, I want to go do that. And he says, no. No? What do you mean, no? I want to do something. Okay, here's what you do. Go back to your family. Go back to your home. Go back to the life you had previously and let them see and tell them the great things that God has done for you. And that's what this guy did. So the mission, although seemingly a failure on the surface because they rejected Jesus and told him to go back, uh, no, the mission was extended because now here's an ambassador for Christ in the Decapolis. He's there and he's going through the city, through those 10 cities. He probably just went on a missionary venture to those 10 cities. And he would go in and people would look at him undoubtedly, you know, kind of like the story in uh, John chapter nine, where there's a blind man who's healed. And people are like, wait, is that the blind guy? Okay, it kind of looks like him, but no, no, I don't think it's him. Yeah, no, it is him. And I'm sure this was the same situation. This guy comes through town and they're like, wait, isn't that the guy that was in the tombs? Isn't that the guy that was bound with chains? No, that can't be him, no way. That guy's normal. That guy's full of joy. He's kind, he's generous, he's loving, he's all the things he was not. People are like, man, it sure looks like him, but no way, it couldn't be him. But it was him. And he went back to those places and he did as Jesus told him to do and it was go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. And you know, I always think this, whenever we go anywhere and do gospel ministry, I always think of like, you know, who's like the demonized person in the town? You know, who's that, who's that one person that, man, if they got saved, everybody would just go, okay, there's got to be a God because there actually is no explanation for this apart from that. And, and seriously, I mean, you want to see that happen because quite often that can be so impactful. So that's what happens. Now, in closing, the, the case here is, is obviously an extreme case. And so this isn't something that you would, you know, find regularly, this, this possession by this multitude of, of demons. Uh, the only other place where we have a, a reference to a person being possessed with more than one demon is actually in the case of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, we're told, was possessed by seven demons. <clears throat> Jesus cast seven demons out of her. And th these are the only two where you have this multiple thing. So <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is an extreme case. But as I said, this type of possession still can occur today. We used to think that this was relegated to, well, you know, in certain places where the gospel's never gone and there's, you know, intense darkness and idolatry and all that. Certain cultures, you would find it there, but you won't find it in the West because 
of the Christianized culture that we have. And, you know, maybe there was some truth to that a little bit anyway. But the, the more the Western world moves away from the gospel and the influence of the gospel, the more you see this kind of stuff resurfacing. And people now, even non-believers, are beginning to recognize, like, like uh, Jode, the philosopher, did, they're beginning to recognize, you know, there are some things that just cannot really be explained by human sinfulness or by human wickedness. And when you think of the mass shootings that we've had over the past few years, and, you know, every time you have one of those, you go back and you find there's some weird sort of demonic thing that's happening, or you see it in the terrorist attacks. And remember, Satan is a murderer. So whenever you see murder and these mass murders, you know that the hand of the devil is in this. And, you know, some of these guys that have committed these, these atrocities, you, you see them in the courtroom and you see they're just blank. And, you know, they find out that they've been into all kinds of bizarre, you know, dabbling into Satanism and things like that. It's, it's a reality today. These things happen today. And how does anyone ever come uh, from a place like that? Well, Christ alone is the one who can free people from that. And you know, even those who have murdered, even those who uh, have mass murdered, you know, there, there are people in prison today who would be considered mass murderers. And you know, in the prisons, they've come to faith. I remember the um, years ago, Pastor Chuck uh, sitting behind his desk and, and handing me a letter, uh, said, read this. And I read it. It was from a guy who was just telling him how God had blessed his life through his teaching and how encouraged he had been and, um, you know, how, of course, he would never get out of prison because he was a mass murderer. And yet Christ had saved him. And, you know, it was a letter of thanks. It was the son of Sam. Some of you remember that name from back in the, I think it was the 70s. Uh, he was a serial killer. And um, the same happened with uh, one of the, the, the Manson family members. Uh, they came to faith in Christ in prison and were delivered. And so deliverance comes through Jesus. Now, just a couple of other things really quick. So, like I said, we're looking at an extreme case here, but I want us to see that there's application for us as well. Because the Bible also talks about the possibility of Christians coming under some control by the devil. Now, the, I, I do not believe the Bible teaches that a Christian can be demon-possessed like anything like we read here, that a demon can indwell you or anything like that. I, I think the Bible teaches against that. But the Bible does teach that the devil is always looking to take advantage of us and to get like a stronghold in our lives. And so we have to be aware of that and areas of our lives that we, through disobedience, uh, potentially yield over to the enemy, uh, we can come into a place where we are all bound up because of the influence of Satan that we have allowed him to have. Paul put it like this in writing to the Ephesians. He said, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor give place or a foothold to the devil. 
See, Paul says there are things that you can do that will actually give the devil an opportunity to get a grip on your life. In writing to the Corinthians, he says something similar. He urges them to forgive one another, lest Satan take advantage of you. You see, as Christians, when we start dabbling into sin, and when we intentionally move in the direction of disobedience, we open ourselves up to the enemy getting a grip on our lives. And we don't want to do that. And listen, drugs, alcohol, pornography, these are the idols of the day. Uh, These are the demon's tools of the trade, so to speak. And the enemy uses these kind of things to try to advance his mission, which is to rob, to kill, and destroy. You know, when you come to Christ, you're freed from the power of the devil, but he wants to get influence back in your life to prevent you from ever really progressing and advancing in your relationship with God. And if he can get you involved in these kinds of things, then he will succeed. It's a foothold. That's all he's looking for. He's looking for one area where you start submitting to him rather than to God. And then he's going to try to work his way deeper and deeper into your life. So recognize that that's a reality and don't let that happen. Obey the Lord. Follow him. Submit to him. Those things that that you know uh, he tells us not to be involved in, uh, just, just stay as far away from those things as you can. You know, t- we have the, you know, the new thing of uh, legalization of various drugs and marijuana in particular. And, you know, there are people that are saying, well, you know, it's legal now, so it, what's the problem? I mean, it's, You know, alcohol has been legal for a long time too, but the Bible is still very clear that drunkenness is a sin. And so we, you know, we we don't want to go with the culture. We don't want to go with, well, hey, you know, it's, that's not a problem anymore because now it's been legalized. Um, It's still the same thing. It's still you know, they call marijuana the gateway drug. It is more than the gateway drug to other drugs. It's a gateway into the demonic. You know, the New Testament word for sorcery and witchcraft, the Greek word is pharmakia. Figure that out really quick. What does that word sound like to you? Sounds like pharmaceutical, right? And it's a reference to illicit drugs, which have been used all the way back into biblical times in the context of witchcraft and sorcery. And having been one who experimented with drugs when I was younger, I, and I remember it was like a portal right into the demonic realm. And that's what it is. So we don't want to mess with this stuff because know this, the devil has no friends. The devil only, always, hates you and is set on your destruction. And if he can fool you into thinking that he's actually on your side, well, he's happy to do that too. 
But listen, that, that's what he does. He's a destroyer. That's a name given to him in scripture. He's a destroyer. Remember back in the 60s when the stones, you know, their, their infamous song, Sympathy for the Devil. Man, you listen to the words to that song and you're like, boy, Satan gave those words to Mick. You know, man, you listen to that and it's like, wow. Yep, that's the stuff the devil did, for sure. But have no sympathy for the devil because he has no sympathy for you. He only has hatred, deep-seated hatred for you and not just for you as a Christian. He really hates you as a Christian because you can actually, you know, damage his kingdom. But you know, the devil hates every human being. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God and every human being reminds the devil of God that he doesn't want to acknowledge. And every human being is loved by God. And so if the devil can just wreak havoc on humanity in his twisted mind, this is just getting back at God. So the devil has no friends. And all those people that think that they're the friend of the devil and they can't wait to party with him in hell, you got a rude awakening coming. There is no party in hell. The devil doesn't rule in hell. He's going to be the guy in the deepest, darkest chamber of it, experiencing the greatest torment of all. So, these are real things. And they're not to be trifled with. But, as we already pointed out, the great news is that Christ overcame the principalities, the powers, the authorities, these dark forces. He overcame them on the cross. He defeated them. And it's only a matter of time before that victory is displayed universally. And that's what we wait for. So, Lord, we thank you. That greater is he that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than the one who is in the world, Satan. Thank you, Lord, that we are indwelt by the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you set us free from the captivity of the devil. Lord, every one of us at one time were uh, held captive by the enemy. But Lord, you set us free and how we thank you for that today. And help us, Lord, to continue to walk forward in that freedom. And Lord, just as you commanded this man to go and to uh, find his friends and to tell them the great things that you had done for him, Lord, may our lives be so wrapped up in that that anything else just has no place. Lord, we don't want to give any place to the devil. And so... We yield our hearts afresh to you today. And Lord, I pray for any and every believer that might have in some way yielded themselves over to the enemy, given him a foothold. Lord, thank you that freedom can come through simple confession and turning to you. So help those that need to do that to do that today. And Lord, for anyone that might even be with us or listening or watching 
And they would just identify with this man, maybe not to the fullest extent, but they would recognize that there's a power that controls them for bad. And they can't get out of that grip except by calling upon you. Help them, Lord, to call upon you. We pray that you would set them free. In Jesus' name, amen.